Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. From Mamma Mia, I'm Gemma Bath, filling in for Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. A state of emergency has been declared in New South Wales, a catastrophic warning in place with a fire danger the city has never seen. We're also being told that these fires will spread very fast. Embers could travel 30 kilometres in front of the fire front. The past few days have been really tense, to say the least, with bushfires affecting most Australian states, in particular New South Wales and Queensland, with many experts still predicting that the worst is yet to come. Here at The Quickie, we didn't want to chase interviews with people who are potentially having the worst week of their life. So while the affected communities come to terms with what's unfolded and what may happen in the future, we thought we'd take a look back at how communities can rebuild and what we can do to support them by speaking to two women who went through it 10 years ago. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. Bushfires have always been a threat in our country. Our landscape has been sculpted by them for millions of years. Our native plants have grown hardier because of them. A number of our species even depend on fire to regenerate. But this week is the worst threat in known history. We're facing unprecedented fire risk, and it's not even summer yet. Our deadliest fire on record was 10 years ago. The Black Saturday bushfires killed 173 people and entire towns were left unrecognisable. Melanie Harris-Brady was one of the lucky ones. She was standing in her back garden in Kinglake, Victoria, when the sky turned black. It sounded like jet engines. It's the only way to describe it. It was a massive roar of jet engines. And you cannot describe the fear that goes through you. You know, I often say that you've got, you know, I'm scared of a spider or, you know, the goosebumps that you might get if you're in the middle of the night and you think you hear a noise. And then you've just got this other fear that hopefully I never have to experience again. It, you just can't describe it. We talk about humans having fight or flight. In that moment, mm-hmm. do you just, do you run? Do you, what goes through your head? What did you do? Absolutely. I ran, I ran inside. I grabbed a torch because it was dark. My husband had passed away oh, 18 months prior, so I grabbed his ashes out of a pot. I ran down the house, grabbed a jewellery box. By this stage, I saw the agapanthers that circle my driveway and I was watching them exploding and I thought, oh, I've got no time to get anything else and I ran to the car. It's just this automatic flight mode. I read that when you were leaving, you could feel your skin starting to bubble. Yeah, so that was a really strange experience. As I was driving out, there was sort of fire everywhere. It was 
dark and you couldn't see, but you could see the glow of flames. And I actually saw myself, I was closing my eyes every now and then because I thought that this is it, the fire's just going to consume the car, the windscreen's going to explode, I don't want shards of glass getting in my eyes. So I've covered my eyes and I truly thought that I could see myself looking at me, you know, I've got some lovely wrinkles under my eyes, you know, the flakes, you know, sort of falling, my hair black, and I thought, oh, I'm dead. This, this, this is me dead. Um, and then, you know, took my hands off my eyes and grabbed onto the steering wheel, keeping in mind I was probably doing you know, 20, 30 kilometres and realised, oh, no, I'm still going. This is still going. I'm still trying to get out of here. Do you head towards an evacuation centre or family or, or what do you do when your home is on fire? So because we didn't have the forewarning, for me, I headed towards a place called Yay, which is quite quite a distance away from any friends or family. And at that point, they were making a makeshift evacuation centre. I didn't stay there very long because I felt like I was a sitting duck and I was sort of hearing reports that there were fires in different regions. And my brother's called me and said, we're coming to get you from Yay. And I said, no, no, you can't drive here. So I continued on to another place called Seymour and eventually wound my way out towards the suburbs of Melbourne where there was friends and family. That time that you did spend at the evacuation centre, what's that like? I think for those of us who haven't experienced it, we, mm. we just can imagine it being madness. Is it organised? The people that organise it are primarily the Red Cross volunteers. They are amazing, amazing people. But there wasn't chaos. Um, I do recall it was just a murmuring. It was like a hum. It was very, very quiet. I think there was a lot of people in shock. And that's the part I think that you grapple with when you go to somewhere like this is the amount of people that are in shock because your brain is still trying to comprehend what you've just gone through and it can't catch up. So it's quite a strange place to be at. What got you through it in that immediate moment, in those in those first few hours, in that first day? Um, I th- oh, the fact that my brain had not caught up with what had happened. Yeah. It was quite surreal. And also that, I mean, I have a daughter who, as a parent, you sort of have to just step up and put your own trauma aside for that moment and just do what you need to do to get her clothes and basic necessities. How long did it take after the dust had settled, literally, for, mm. for you to rebuild not just physically but mentally? Oh, my goodness. Many, many, many years, many years you know, you put on the mask and do what needs to be done and, you know, you're the loving mother and and friend and partner and all that sort of stuff. So you may not have realised that, but it does take many, many, many years. What about physically? How long did it take for you to get a roof over your head again? That took a number of months, mainly because I had a daughter who refused to move from the community that we were living in. We ended up finding a rental property that needed some repairs. In between that, we were living at this friend's place who had a barn. And then we stayed at another friend's bungalow here in the community. So it took a number of months just to get that semi-permanent roof over our head. I think that that's kind of what we need to be thinking about right now. These people that are experiencing these bushfires are in the midst of 
that mm. that fight or flight, that danger period. But I guess what we want to know is what we can do to help. What did you need? What did you want in those days, weeks, months after the fire? People that have gone through the trauma or have lost everything, they're probably not going to actually know what they need because they're still in that fight-flight response. So one of the best things that someone gave me was actually pen and paper to start to write things down and to start to sort my brain out. And that was, you know, it sounds really simple, but the pen and paper was really helpful for me. There were care packs. They were incredible. Those care packs with your toothbrush, your personal items, deodorant, um, things like that, they were absolute gold. Money and vouchers, they were invaluable, although I would recommend that if people know someone who has been impacted or a friend of a friend, I'd suggest going, you know, down the path to get assistance directly to that person. Vouchers to the businesses that have been impacted in those areas, they'll go a long way to helping entire communities. For example, meal vouchers, things like that. Also, to never underestimate the power of just being there. You know, some people might not want to talk about their experience or they might want to talk at great length about their experience. So providing them with a space to do that, you know, a cup of tea, turning the radio or TV off and just creating that space for them to just gather their thoughts while you're looking after their children so that they can comprehend what they've gone through, you know, that's, that's invaluable and, and doesn't cost a great deal. Alice Bishop lost her family home in Christmas Hills. She's since written a book called A Constant Hum, which tells stories about the aftermath of fire. Alice, what happened to your dad the day your house burnt down? There was a communication breakdown um, with the authorities, so the house was burning towards our house for, for four hours before we found out, and the only way we found out was my dad um, saw the trees catching light and luckily found his car keys and drove past some pretty awful stuff and ended up in the valley safe. So I think a lot of the emergency warnings have changed. I think we still have a long way to go in terms of the broader issues, climate change, all of these things. But I think today is the day to donate to the Red Cross and the Disaster Relief Fund, which really helped us after Black Saturday. You mentioned that it's hard to watch the footage that's happening right now. Does it take mm. you back to that moment? Was there a, is there is that a terror that you just don't get over? Look, I think, you know, I have the luxury of hindsight and I have the luxury that we did survive the fires. But, you know, I was speaking to my mum last night as we were watching the footage of the New South Wales fires and she was saying how, you know, she just had to switch it off. And I've got friends and people I know who've lost family in, in the Black Saturday fires. And I think the hard thing in our climate today is that you can't escape some of the footage. It's on Instagram, it's on Twitter, it's on Facebook. Another reality of bushfire and climate change in the country is that most people will know someone who knows someone who's been through this stuff. So it's really important, I think, to just check in, ask if they're okay and if they are dealing with this constant stream of coverage, I think. What did you learn about your township and your community after such a horrible thing happened to it? Yeah, that's a good question. I was speaking to my dad this morning and he was talking about how he feels so helpless watching the New South Wales fires and the coverage and we were talking about Black Saturday and talking about how it was an unbelievable sense of coming together after those fires in terms of community support, colleagues, friends at a state level, at a government level. 
you know, Dad said to me, he said, I wish everyone could feel that without having their house burned down. And I think that's something to really remember in times like this of, you know, we can share articles and, and, and tweets and Instagram posts and that's all really helpful. But at the same time, it really does come down to checking on each other and to donating money and to just seeing if others are okay, not only in the days following the fires, but in the weeks, the months and, and ultimately the years, because these things do have a really long tail. We know it takes a huge psychological toll on people, but what are the ripple effects? What are the ripple effects to relationships, to past traumas that people Mm. have had, that kind of thing? Yeah, look, I can only speak for myself and, you know, I've I've written about it a bit and thought about it a lot for the last 10 years. But, you know, I think bushfire offers a really raw kind of stripped back environment where, where existing traumas can really thrive, whether it's relationship difficulties or financial hardships or kind of existing inequalities and I think it's something that we all should keep in mind when we're talking to someone down the street or you know you run into someone in the supermarket that you know has lived through the fires or knows someone who has lived through the fires to just to acknowledge that and not force anything on them but to be open to conversation and I think I think we kind of get bogged down in the sensationalist headlines of hellfires and, and it's really important to think about the quieter stories that are, that are going on in people's lives, as well as the fires. University of Melbourne research done on the communities involved in Black Saturday found that after five years, the majority were recovering well. 15%, however, did say they weren't OK. The study found strong social and community ties made the biggest difference to how people recovered and could help protect against psychological distress. A sense of community and connection greatly increased people's resilience to the disaster. So instead of posting a tribute on social media as we watch this disaster unfold, start collecting essentials, donate money or offer an ear. There are some links in our show notes to some of the organisations lending a hand. Ellie Beatty is the executive producer of The Quickie, audio production by Ian Camilleri. To listen to The Quickie episode that takes you inside the mind of someone who intentionally starts a bushfire, we'll also pop a link to that episode in our show notes. 